0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church Podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Between 1619 and 1866, between 400 and 600,000 African slaves were brought into uh, the colonies, into North America, into our country. And um, many of them became Christians, and many of them sustained under incredible persecution and really not much hope in front of them, uh, continued to sustain. There's really a robust Christian um, influence and, and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Um, reputation within uh, even um, slave peoples. Um, And you can see this that comes out in their songs, in the Negro spirituals. I don't know if you've ever looked up some of the Negro spirituals. But it, it, it speaks to uh, those that are under oppression, those that are in difficult circumstances, those that are suffering, where do they go for hope? What sustains them? What keeps them patient? What keeps them hopeful? What keeps them faithful? And uh, some of these Negro spirituals, and you can go lots of places around the world where Christians are under a lot of difficult circumstances, uh, but, but one thing that seems to come up again and again in a lot of these Negro spirituals that helps sustain people uh, through in, in a lot of injustices and difficulties was their songs, the songs they would sing in the field, the songs that they would sing at night. And one of them is like, is swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, uh, coming forth to carry me home. I look over Jordan, and what do I see? Coming forth to carry me home. A band of angels coming for me, coming forth to carry me home. Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. Coming forth to carry me home. But still my soul feels heavy, heavenly bound coming for to carry me home. And it just goes on and on, speaking of, of really the second coming of Jesus, how he comes, and that is a source of hope for the Christian when it doesn't seem like there's any worldly or physical hope in their circumstances. Steal away to Jesus is another beautiful um, uh, Negro spiritual. Steal away, steal away, steal away to Jesus. Steal away, steal away home. I ain't got long to stay here. My Lord, He calls me. He calls me by the thunder. The trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. Green trees are bending. Poor sinners stand a trembling. The trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. My Lord, He calls me. He calls me by the lightning. The trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. So, what sustains Christians in hard times? You can go around the world, and it's these songs. It's reciting these truths about the return of Jesus. And all of the things that will be made right when he returns. And that's really what James is landing his book. We're now entering the conclusion of his book. And he has challenged us in a lot of areas of our life. And now he brings, in our last three sermons that we'll have together, a tremendous amount of comfort. He has, in a sense, done surgery on us. And now he's comforting us in the post-op. He's, he's caring well for our hearts and our souls. And what we find is that in the midst of tough circumstances, James is going to encourage his people to patient endurance rooted in the confidence that Jesus is coming back soon. He's coming back very soon, and this is really at the heart of it. So I want to read James 5, 7 through 20. So I'm just going ahead and read the rest of the book. We're only going to look at 7 through 12 today, but I want you to see how he closes out this book with such sweetness. He's really worked on us a lot. He's worked on our character. He's worked on our fruitfulness, all rooted in the gospel, all in evidences of grace. And now he comforts us as he closes out his letter. And listen to this, James 5, 7 through 20. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Oh, that's so sweet. And I think in this conclusion... In the midst of suffering and trials and the difficulty of following Jesus, he tells us that there's three superpowers that we have as believers. We're just going to look at one of them today, but I just want to point them out to you. The Christian superpower of patience in 7 through 12. The Christian superpower of prayer in verses 13 through 18. And the Christian superpower of repentance in 19 and 20. Those are not the superpowers we would pick if we were trying to establish a kingdom but it is the superpowers that we have to endure and to bring about God's kingdom in the world is patience, prayer, and repentance. That's what I want you to lean into. Until Jesus comes, lean into these three things. These are your superpower. This is where the grace is. This is where the strength is. This is what will help you endure. And for 2,000 years, we've been watching Christians, and this has been the three things that God has sustained his people with. Is patience, prayer, and repentance. And he wants to make sure they have it. And they know where they can find the power to do all the things that he has described in this letter. So six questions about the Christian superpower of patience. The first question I'm going to answer is going to take about half our time. So for those of you that might get panicked about the pacing of this message, know that I've thought about that. And the second half will go, the second five will actually go faster than the first one. But here it is. The Christian superpower of patience. That's where he's landing this letter. What is patience made of? What is he describing? So what is this patience he's talking about, and what is it made of? Okay. He says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives early and late rains. You also be patient. He's just emphasizing this is your Christian response to suffering. Because he's just talked about in the previous passage of the rich who are oppressing them. And God's going to take care of them. Your response is patience. This is what I want you to get in light of, these unrighteous um, oppressors. You be patient. That's your, because the coming of the Lord, He's coming. He's going to deal with them, and He's also going to deal with you. Patient here in the original language is a compound word, macro thumeo, which means long, macro, we get that, macro, big, long, far. It's kind of a distance word long distant far away and thumeo is passion or sacrifice so he's calling them to a long suffering a far reaching passion okay so you're when you become a christian you're expecting suffering and you're expecting a long suffering with an ending in mind be patient resolve yourself to take the long view that you you have a passion you have a suffering that is going to need to go all the way to the end. It's a long one. So patience here is the idea of suffering for a long time, a long-range, sustainable passion or sacrifice. Patience is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. I thought about just taking all of the passages that relate to patience, God's patience and our patience, and we would spend 40 minutes just reading those. Patience is all over the New Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. This idea that God is patient, so therefore you be patient. Long-suffering. There's no one more long-suffering than God. He's put up with a lot of junk for a long time for a purpose. And so we also do the same thing. So that's the idea here. Patience is this long-suffering, this extended passion, this ongoing sacrifice that we are called to make because of what Christ has done for us in response to the trials of this world. But notice in verse 8, he calls them to establish their hearts. So what we see is this long-suffering patience is also made of rootedness. So I think all of this is is describing the patience that he's calling them to do. Well, how do we have that kind of patience? What's it made of? What's the stuff that's in patience that makes it work? Well, one is rootedness, a long-suffering rootedness. He says, establish your hearts. Greek word, sterizo, which means to make more firm. So make your faith firmer today than it was yesterday, more solid, deeper, more rooted, more nourished, strengthened. Establish your hearts together. In what? What are we to establish our hearts in? I think basically in the larger context of the gospel, it would be the gospel, right? Get deeper, stronger, more sure. Work on your faith. Strengthen it for the long haul. So go deep into sound doctrine. The pastoral epistles talk about this all the time, that you need to teach what accords with sound doctrine. People need to know the character of God. They need to know the reality of human sin. They need to know the deep doctrines of the faith. You've got to get people down into the roots. They're ground. He has to go all the way in. If it's going to last, the roots have to go deep. And so many of the pastoral epistles go, Pastor, this is your job, is to get people rooted in sound doctrine. Get them rooted in sound doctrine. This is part of why we have the Men's Theology Night on Monday nights, is we're trying to get the roots down deep so that men will last. They will establish their hearts deep with roots in the gospel, in the truths of what God says. So that means that patience is not just idleness, like just sort of sitting on the couch waiting for Jesus to come home. This is active. We're digging in the dirt. We're trying to get deeper into the Word. It requires effort. Patience requires discipline. So this long-suffering rootedness means there's a discipline that we are stirring one another up in so that we might be solid to last for the long run. Just in terms of an application, what's a way that you could establish your hearts? Get yourself a really good study Bible and just eat it up. Devour it. Get yourself a good theology book. I could recommend some. Justin, Scott, there's many of you that have read great books. Read them. Establish your faith. Strengthen your faith. And read it with somebody else so that you could be strengthened together. That's the conclusion. That's what gets you to the finish line is this long-suffering rootedness in sound doctrine and the gospel. But also, we see that this patience is made of graciousness. Look at verse 9. He says it in the negative, this long-suffering graciousness with each other. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another. Under the pressure of culture, under the pressure of these rich people early on that are oppressing the people, a culture that is hostile to God, you're going to be tempted to get frustrated with each other. You guys know this, right? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We need a long-suffering graciousness with each other. You guys know this. You have a tough day at work. You get home. You take it out on the kids, right? Something doesn't go well, you're now, you're now short with your wife, Right? We tend to sometimes take the pressures that we feel, the disappointments, the discouragements, and then we take them out on the people that are most for us, right? And so he's saying, don't do that. Don't grumble against one another. Under the pressures that you will feel that he's described in the book of James, that his people are going through, hey, you've got to make sure, and you're going to have to work on this because your natural instinct will be to lash out, and it's going to be to lash out on the people that are most for you, that are gifts from God to you, Right? Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Greek word here is stenazo. So it's sort of an interesting play on words from verse 9. Establish or sterezo, not stenazo, right? (laughs) There's sort of a play on words here of like, be rooted in your hearts without grumbling. Okay, so get some sterezo in your life and no stenazo. Get rid of that. Get rid of the groaning, the grumbling, the complaining is what that means. James has talked about this in James chapter 3, about the sins of our speech, that out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, brothers, that cannot be. That cannot be in our gatherings or our homes. And then in James 4, he says, don't judge one another, right? So this idea that someone isn't living up to my expectations, my church community isn't living up to my expectations, so I'm going to grumble, I'm going to groan, I'm going to harbor complaints. um, Can't do that. It won't get you to the finish line. It won't help you get other people to the finish line. And if we're going to have this long suffering in a hostile world until the return of Jesus, we have to be gracious with each other. We have to assume the best. We have to banish complaining among us. Blomberg, who's a commentator, I've got his commentary at the Ministry Center, he had a great statement here. He said, What complaints did this congregation have that James is writing to? Perhaps they project their frustrations from their landlords on each other. Perhaps they disagree about how they ought to deal with issues and different factions complain about each other in anger. Maybe they are blaming one another for the problems they're facing as a congregation. Or maybe they are accusing one another to avoid issues in their own lives. But now their complaints threaten them with judgment. The Lord is going to judge them for their grumbling and their complaining. Philippians 2 talks about this coming right off that beautiful passage where it talks about Jesus as our example. That though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, suffering death, and now he's going to be exalted. Have your mind, have that same mind. He goes on to say this in Philippians 2. I think this is on the screen, verses 14 and 16. Listen to this. In light of the glory of Christ and all that's happening with him, this is his application. Do all things, how many things? All things, without grumbling or disputing, "...that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the world, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among which you shine like lights in the world." Pictures here is like stars. Against the blackness of a very grumbly world, your lack of grumbling will be like stars that illuminate the night sky, holding fast to the word of life so that at the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." (laughs) Paul's kind of laying it on thick here. Your grumbling may cause me to regret bringing you the gospel. Ooh, I don't want to regret that because of the way that you grumble when things don't. You do all things without grumbling or disputing, turning on each other. 1 Corinthians 10 also speaks of this issue of grumbling, that there needs to be a graciousness among us, this warning against grumbling. 1 Corinthians 10 now these things took place, he's talking about all those crazy Old Testament stories where God like opens up the earth and consumes people and there's fire and disease, like these st- severe judgments against God's people in the Old Testament. He's saying, hey, the reason that those happened was to teach you something about God and yourself and what it, that is supposed to be. So 1 Corinthians ten six through 11, these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, and it was written, the people sat down to drink, eat and drink, and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. So number one, don't have any other gods before God, right? That was the first thing they were judged for. Secondly, don't indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day, sexual immorality, okay? Two two big ones. Verse 9, and... We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. So that's a third thing. And then number 10, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, for they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So he just lists like these are the four sins that God wants to get across to you. This is like the Mount Rushmore of sins, if you want to be judged, right? Would that be the four you'd pick? Idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, putting Christ to the test, and then grumbling. Would that make your top four judgeable sins? It does here. He says, yeah, that's the point. That's why God did that, Was because that would be hard for you to take. <laughs> you would excuse your grumbling, but I'm telling you, don't grumble as some of them did. Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, great theologian says, grumbling has destroyed far more churches than heresy ever has. Stay patient is the call here. Stay established. Be gracious with each other because you're going to need each other. I don't want to speak ill of anyone that I'm going to have to spend eternity with. That just gets awkward, right? Encourage one another. Help one another. Do not grumble, brothers. Because the judge is at the door. The idea there is that he can hear you. You ever walked into a conversation, and it's clear that the conversation was about you or something they didn't want you in, and it's just sort of this awkward, like, they didn't really want you to hear what's happening, and so there's just sort of this awkwardness going, Jesus hears you. He hears what you say about other people. He's standing at the door. Like, there's not much between you and him, and so we tend to think that maybe that's just, we can just say that, we can just vent it's like, no, he, he can hear you. He's at the door. He's like right there. So by way of application, I would encourage all of us to just banish all grumbling. Give ourselves, give, give yourself zero tolerance or excuse for any words of complaint that isn't directed towards God. There are passages that speak about us complaining to God. We can see that in Job. We see that in the Psalms. But it's the turning on each other. Just refuse to do that. Just go, that's just not a tool I'm going to have in the tool bag. That's not a club I'll have in the golf. I'm just not going to use that. I'm trying to come up with metaphors that don't make sense. Okay. Just refuse to do that. Just go, you know what? I'm just not going to give expression to that. I'm going to deal with it quickly because I'm going to need these people. I'm going to need my family. I'm going to need my kids. I'm going to need my church family. I'm going to need my pastor. I'm going to need my elders. And so, I just banish grumbling and embrace graciousness. Also, this long-suffering patience is made up With steadfastness. Very similar to the uh, establish your hearts, but this steadfastness, hypomone, means remaining under or load bearing. That's what this word means steadfast, this ability to take on like a heavy load of suffering. So this is like base, lift with the legs, not the back, right? You guys said different with the TVs, right? Lift with the. (laughs) Like this is load bearing. This is like, okay, these. Think through the scriptures about the people that bore a heavy ministry, that endured through incredible suffering, the load that God was able to put on some of his servants, and they still stand. And he gives some examples there, right? You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. God put a heavy weight on this man, and he wobbled, and he whined, but he did not fail. He's like you, do that. That is blessed, he says. Hypermone, remaining under load-bearing, a big load-bearing patience. James has talked about this in the very beginning of his book. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when you're having to lift that heavy weight of suffering, it's going to give you strength for the next load that's coming, right? This is the power lifter. This is like have a faith that can endure. Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's how you build muscle, right? That's how you build spiritual muscle is through testing it, pushing it to its limit. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this is like the, the bodybuilding. Like Consider the spiritual resiliency that Job had and pursue that and, cons- and, and assume that every inconvenience... Every trial, every frustration is simply building spiritual muscle for steadfastness that you're going to need and your brothers and sisters are going to need to get to the end. That's what God is doing with you. He's like a trainer who's pushing you to your limit for your good. In verse chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Isn't that great? So patience requires rootedness, requires graciousness, requires steadfastness, the strength. R.J. Noling, this is a theologian I found, sounds like J.K. Rowling, but the letters are different. R.J. Noling, different person, says this, patience is the self-restraint to not hastily retaliate against a wrong. So it's the self-restraint Steadfastness is the temper that does not easily succumb under suffering and pressure. And notice he says that they're blessed. This kind of sounds like Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Consider the blessedness. We consider blessed those who remain steadfast. We look at the characters in the Bible and we marvel at them going, man, what a faith. And then we're frustrated when God allows us to go through things that would produce that kind of faith, right? I want to be a man of faith like that. I just don't want to go through the process, right? Uh, I would like to be 20 pounds lighter than I am, but I don't want to go through the process of being 20 pounds lighter, of what that would actually take, right? Like we marvel at the faith that these men had in the scriptures. And then we balk and we fight and we're frustrated and we quit when God actually takes us through the process to bring us to that blessed state of faith. We want the faith of Job. We don't want the life of Job, right? And this blessed feels like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who wants to be poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. Who wants to mourn? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. James is picking up, I think, that same theme of like, hey, that steadfastness, the blessing of that comes through trial. And hey, good news. You're in the gym right now and you're building strength. You're building strength in ways that you wouldn't pick. But God is working. We admire the prophets while wanting to avoid what made them godly. Trials and suffering with truth-telling. Consider Job. He's like, hey, let's let's go to that example. Go to Job. And actually, we're going to do that in our next sermon series that begins on Easter. Weirdest Easter sermon ever will be the tragedy of Job. And we're going to spend some time. We're just going to take James' instruction here. He says, consider Job. That's sort of how he ends his letter. So I'm like, oh, well, that should be our next sermon series. We'll just let the Bible tell us what to study next. So we're going to spend a few weeks in Job. And I think you'll be amazed at uh, how helpful the book of Job is. The word compassionate there, you see the purpose of God, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We see that in the Job story. It comes in sort of a weird way, but it's there. The word for compassionate is polus flagnos. That's fun to say doing lots of Greek works today because there's lots of fun ones to say. That doesn't always work out, but there are. Polusplagnos, which means many guts or many intestines. is that fun? Pauli, many. Splagnos, guts, intestines. And the idea of compassion is that I feel in my gut. I feel. That was sort of the idea back in the day was that, that your, your belly was sort of the seat of emotions. So this is saying that the Lord has all of the feelings towards you. God has, he's full of compassion. He feels in his gut everything he's putting you through. He's not indifferent. He's not disengaged. He knows what he's putting you through and he feels the pain and the struggle and the difficulty. He feels that for you and with you. He does not wound from his heart as one of the Old Old Testament prophets speaks. So God is full of compassion for you from his guts. He feels it. He feels what you feel. And so what we have is we have compassion for your suffering. And then he says he's also merciful. He's mercy for your sin. So as you go through the trials and tribulations, you're going to need patience. But just know God's heart for you is that he is full of compassion. He has many feelings towards you. And he has much mercy for your sin. He has compassion for your suffering. He has mercy for your sin. He's not running out of any of it. He has a lot of it. We see that in Job And you can experience that as well. Compassions for your suffering and mercy for your sin. So I think one way we could apply this is that we could read church history. Like, he calls them to look back at some of the great stories of people of faith in the Old Testament. We could read Hebrews chapter 11. Actually, that'd be a great thing to do right now. By faith, this man endured this, endured this, endured this, endured this. You're supposed to look to them and go, I am going to do that too. Nobody in the scripture had an easy time walking with God. No one got an easy, first-class experience. All of them suffered. Name one character in the Bible that had an easy life. No one. Yet we tend to think that we deserve one. That's just not the case. We would be helped by reading our Bibles and seeing the examples of the saints down through history, of steadfastness in testing, and we should also read church history, learn about Christians around the world. If your day is saturated only with American political talk, you're going to get very discouraged and you're not going to have the nourishment you need. If everything is always just shades of Republican red or Democrat blue, you're going to be depressed. You'll become very corrupted, misshapen, and shaky, ineffective, let alone Christian. There's something about Christians being faithful down through the ages, reading the Negro spirituals, hearing about Christians in China, learning about what it was like in the Reformation, reading the Puritans, understanding the church fathers, reading about martyrs in the first century. What does steadfastness look like to stand firm and endure? We have tons of characters in the Bible that are meant to be encouragement for us, and we have tons of Christians down through history and in other cultures and places that can teach us so much about what it means to be steadfast. So read some good church history. Again, I could recommend some to you if you want, some great biographies of what steadfastness through trial, real patience to the end, looks like. And then lastly, this long-suffering has integrity, integrity in word and action. Look at verses 12 and 13. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath. Let your yes be yes, even in suffering, even if it costs you something, even if no one else is doing it, you have integrity. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James is just pulling this straight from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Jesus says, again, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, and you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. The whole reason for oaths is because we can't trust people, right? Be a person that doesn't need oaths not to say that you don't take the oath when you're giving testimony in court or sign a contract, but the idea is don't be the kind of person that people have to double-check your word or get you to sign on to something because there's a lack of integrity there. Like the boy who cried wolf, right? Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. There was this ranking in, in those days of oaths that if you took an oath this, then you weren't, on the hook but if you took an oath on the gold of the temple well then you have to keep that oath there was this loopholes to truth telling just be a truth teller even under pressure even in suffering even if it costs you your life be a truth teller have integrity notice the only time in the new testament where someone takes an oath is Peter when he denies Jesus I swear I don't know the man right he's lying He actually has to use an oath to get someone to believe his lie. Don't be someone that needs an oath. Have your speech and your action totally integrated. Totally, thoroughly truthful. Whole. Scripture sometimes calls this wholeness. Where I'm one thing. I'm integrated. God is one thing. He doesn't speak one thing and do another. He doesn't go back on himself And part of the fall on us is that we're duplicitous. We're double-minded, as James says. We say one thing, we do another. We say things, and then we don't follow through. Part of the work of restoring the image of God in us is we become whole. We become one person. What we say is what we do. What we do matches what we say. There's no hypocrisy or double-mindedness in us. So this patience has with it this idea of integrity in word and action. So, as by way of application, have relentless integrity. Just say yes and just say no in every dealing. If you say 6 o'clock, be there at 6 o'clock. Don't undermine your credibility with people. That reflects on the gospel. You're not just reflecting yourself. You're eroding trust in who your Lord is. Don't say, I'll pray about it, and then not pray about it. If you say, I'll pray about it, pray about it, maybe right then and there. Don't ghost people, don't give false excuses, don't need oaths to convince people. Ultimately, if you have said yes even to Jesus as Lord, then don't say no to his commands. Let your yes be yes and your no be no with God. To his commandments and his ways. So just be relentlessly, have relentless integrity. So that's what we see, that this patience that he's talking about is packed full of stuff, right? It's packed full of long-suffering rootedness, long-suffering graciousness with others, long-suffering steadfastness in testing, and long-suffering integrity in word and deed. We're one thing. So let me get to the other questions, okay? These will go quickly. Who must be patient then? If that's what patience is, that's what the gospel produces when we grab hold of it, that's where it's taking us. That's what it requires of us. Who then must be patient? Certainly just the super-Christians, probably, right? But he says brothers four different times, verse 7, 9, 10, and 12. He means ordinary Christians. Every ordinary Christian is required to and able to be patient. No exceptions. There's no other Christianity I have to offer you than one that's going to require patience. I don't have a fast-track version. I don't have a shortcut. I don't have two levels like the the, the A plan and the B plan. This is Christianity. No believer gets to opt out of patience. Nobody. Second, well, third question. Where are we to be patient? Well, it's in the context of suffering and in the church. That's where we do it. The context of this whole book of James is joy and suffering. Most scholars believe this is the first New Testament book written. So this was like the first word that the Christians needed. Because <laughs> this Christian thing got hard fast. And they needed this. This was first. There's no other books of the New Testament probably written yet. This is what they need. This is where they need to plant their flag. This is the first word to these first Christians. How do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with the idea that this resurrected Messiah, following him makes your life worse and harder in so many ways? Oh, well, you're going to need patience. You're going to need it in suffering, wherever you are, and you're going to need people to suffer with. Christianity is uniquely constructed for suffering. Christianity doesn't work near as well in prosperity. It's like made for suffering, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus came. He lived a very lowly life, not a a high-level life. Born in a stable, lived virtually homeless, low sustenance, crucifixion, and then he left. Christian life is cross-shaped. It's crucifixion. He says, take up your cross and follow me, not take up your Bentley. Take up your cross and follow me. It's going to be pain and suffering. Christianity actually gets a little off kilter when it's prosperous. There's something about the need for suffering. We're not home. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. We're sufferers. We're servants. Then in the church, right, we have this idea, don't turn on each other. That's just screaming out to us that we need each other. We need elders to pray for us. We're going to see that next week. You have to have elders. You have to. That presumes, I think, a church membership where your elders recognize you as one of their flock and where you recognize them as one of your elders, and there's sort of a clarity that, hey, we're supposed to be praying for you. We, you like, you need that. You're not, there's going to be certain healing and sustenance that you're not going to have unless you're in a local church with elders. Like, There's certain blessings that only come through being under elders. We'll see that next week. In the church, suffering and pain cause us to turn on those closest to us, Worldly pressure, physical suffering, family tensions, we can take it out on our church. We can grumble against our pastors and elders. We can get irritated about decisions that the elders make. We can come discontented with the ministries we do or don't offer. We can be bitter that we keep being asked to serve oh, again and give and attend. We have to do all that and join. Like, what are you talking about? Why is someone sitting in my seat? Why do I always have to be the one to clean up? Why can't someone out reach out to me for once? How come it never seems like my ideas or suggestions get taken? I can't believe these kind of people are coming here now, right? Why didn't we say something about this issue? Why does the pastor keep bringing up this same issue? Why does he keep talking baptism and membership like all the time? Like, let it go. Don't they know and appreciate how hard I have to work? Patience in suffering in the church. We need each other. No grumbling. What about you? How do you handle when patience is required with your church? The Lord's at the door. He can hear us. Where do we suffer? In whatever place and time God has put us. Under whatever diagnosis. If that's in North Korea, if that's in, we just talked about that, North Korea. If you're called to be patient and faithful in North Korea and give your life for the gospel, then you give your life for the gospel. You're patient. If it's here in prosperity, if it's there in disease, wherever it is, You're meant to be patient in and with your church. One person has said that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. It gets persecuted again and again, and it just just doesn't give. Hammer after hammer down through history, persecution after persecution, and the anvil of the church just wears out every hammer. We just have a way of enduring. We just outlast our opponents. (laughs) They run out of energy persecuting us, and we're just like, well, we're still here. I have so many illustrations I'd love to share with you, but I need to uh, keep moving. We have more questions. Question number four. What does this patience look like? He gives us some examples. We've already touched on some of them. The farmer. It's like when you think of patience, think of farming. Farming requires a lot of patience. The farmer has to trust God with what he cannot control. He cannot make the rain come. He cannot make the seeds grow. He cannot accelerate the process to try to get an early payday, right? He has to wait for harvest time. He has to wait on the Lord. That's what the Christian life is like, working and waiting for things that you can't control, that you can't accelerate. He has to work and spend on something that he won't see a return till later. Farmer has to go in incredible debt and hope he's going to get paid off at the end, right? He has to trust God. He has to trust God for the seasons to work out in his favor. He has to trust God. He can't He can't get the harvest in installments. When it's harvest time, it's harvest time, right? So that's the picture here. Think farming. Yeah, the harvest is when Jesus returns. So I'm not expecting to get any payment now. I'm expecting work and wait now. Storms come. I can only, I can't control those things. So I'm patient. Also, think Old Testament prophets. They speak truth and they endure evil, even to death. And they're blessed. So if you're speaking truth and enduring evil, you're in a privileged class. You're in a blessed class. The same class as the prophets, he's saying. Those heroes of the Old Testament, if you're doing that, you're standing for the truth, and you're enduring evil for it, just know that you're in a privileged class. You're in a privileged class there. You are truly blessed. And then think Job, who lost everything. Cling to God, and for 42 chapters until he finally gets the payoff. God's purposes were always the point. So what does famous patience look like? Looks like farming. Looks like a prophet who speaks to people and they don't listen. He gets killed. Looks like Job. Might lose everything. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, Job says. Steadfastness. Two more questions. How long do we have to be patient? Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So, if you're wondering how much longer you have to be patient, you just have to go, is Jesus back yet? Okay, one more day of patience then. Until the coming of the Lord. The good news is, it won't be forever. There is an expiration date to patience. It will end. He's going to come and we will never have to be patient again. And don't think of our patience in terms of just millennium, because it's like, James, it's still two thousand years, right? Did James get this wrong? Well, Peter helps us here. Don't think in terms of millennium, think in terms of days. Second Peter three, eight and nine. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, because we will overlook it. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient. Long suffering towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it's been 2,000 years since James wrote this. That's only been like two days, right? It's only been two days. Patience isn't going to last forever, but it is going to require patience till the very second he comes. 2,000 years of patience, and if it takes another 2,000 more, so be it. He's not returned yet, then we'd be patient. And when he returns, we leave patience behind forever. The only thing we're not allowed to do is stop being patient. Patient until he comes. Lastly, why should we be patient? Three times he says it very explicitly. Verse 7 Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. His return is what motivates and empowers patience. You also, verse 8, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Like, it's right here. You could grab it. Like, it's just literally just out of reach of your hands. It's like right here. Verse 9, do not grumble against the Lord, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Like, there is nothing standing between us and the return of Jesus. Nothing. Like, all he has to do is step across the threshold. He's right there. You can almost grab him. He could do it right now before this sermon is over. Like it's right here. Our patience is almost over. Two times implicitly, it seems like with the Job story, God eventually appears. And even with the oath taking, don't fall under condemnation. We call this the parousia. The parousia is that Jesus is returning. He's going to come. He's going to come personally, he's going to come decisively, he's going to come bodily, and he's going to come at any moment. It's going to come soon. So, this is good news to the humble patient. This is the fuel that keeps us going is today might be the day. And then when we get to tomorrow, we'll go, today might be the day. When we get to the next day, today might be the day. I don't have to try to store up all the patience for the next hundred years. I just have to be patient today, because He might come back today. And that gives me enough. His mercies are new every morning. He'll have patience for me tomorrow that I don't need yet today. I just need today. I just need today. The return of the Lord is always positive judgment for those who are patient. In the parable of Jesus, the judgment is always looking forward for something that Jesus wants to come and reward. We tend to think of the return of the Lord as being primarily judgment, and there's certainly a big component of that, but there's also, He wants to find something to reward, and He's going to reward the patient. So I want to store up my reward by being patient one more day, just stacking up compound interest, right? One more day of being patient, one more day of integrity, one more day of faithfulness, one more day of spiritual bodybuilding. Because there's a payoff. It's compounding interest. And when he comes, he's not just coming with judgment. He's coming with reward for those that will be patient. Let me read Revelation 21, 1 through 8 and then close us out. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Just think about this. This is what he wants his audience to grasp. Is the beauty of what's coming, the coming of the Lord. This is the punchline. This is what is going to empower everything that James is talking about is this hopeful expectation of what's coming soon. Revelation 21, 1 through 8, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more patience needed. God has perhaps appointed a certain amount of tears you have to cry, and you need to cry them. Embrace that. Embrace the suffering. Feel the sadness. Jesus does. God does. He's full of compassion from his belly, and then know that every single one of those tears that you were appointed to cry will all be wiped away. They will all be wiped away. All the pain, all the mourning, all the crying. God has appointed that you have a certain measure of that, but it's gathering up glory for you, and he's going to wipe away every one of them. You will not have to carry them much longer. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Thirsty, patiently waiting for the water. The one who conquers will have his inheritance, will have his heritage, and I will be his God and he will be with me. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with the fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All injustices and sin will be put away forever. And what he will right every wrong. He will get everything right. So we don't have to be patient forever. Just till he returns. And it'll go like that. It'll go like that. We'll be sitting around, maybe in more comfortable chairs than this. And we'll be deciding, man, it went so fast. Like as parents, you get that, right? Your kids are little, days are long, years are short. And every person that has older kids says, oh, it goes so fast. You're like, yeah, that's not helpful today. But it really is. It really is. It goes really fast. And there will be a day when the present suffering will feel like, oh, gosh, why were we so anxious? Why did we grumble? It was all for our good all along. So bottom line, as you can see, patience is not idleness, but active hope. It's a living faith with wholeness, endurance, and kindness. It's all about digging deeper into spiritual things, striving for maturity. It's all about actively taking control of our attitudes and our words and our schedules and strategically using them to build up and never, ever, ever tear down. It's about bearing up under real pain and justice and stress together. It's about saying yes and no and meaning it and doing it and following through, representing that our, uh, realizing that we are representing a totally trustworthy, totally reliable God to a world that is longing to see something real that needs to see the truthfulness of God. So let me ask you this. Is the second coming of Jesus good news to you? Why or why not? Does it dominate your life? Are you thinking every day, today could be the day Today could be the day I can be faithful one more day. Is it the true north of your life's compass? Is it producing the kind of patience in your life that James is describing? If yes, by faith you've put your faith in the person and work of Jesus. Be patient in all the ways and places James has instructed us. I guarantee you, you will not regret it. You will not regret being patient and waiting on the Lord. If no... If you're describing, and I'm describing something that sounds so alien to you, that I encourage you to not be patient. To turn from your sin and self-reliance and embrace the Savior today. To not go without this hope and this strength. This is the kind of life that you actually can have by the Spirit. So I encourage you to not be patient. If all of this sounds foreign and you've not put your trust in Christ, put your trust in His death, His resurrection, His intercession... His return. And you can have a life like this, marked by this, growing in this. Friends, this is our Christian superpower in every place, in every situation. We are going to need each other's help and encouragement, and we're even going to need some correction at times to stay fixed on the truest, realest thing, which is that our Savior is right at the door. He's right there. It's going to be good. We have to hold on to the gospel together, we have no other choice. We have to be patient together with ourselves, with others, with the church, with the lost, with God, and in God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good word. We thank you for this hopeful tone that James is striking at the end of his book after so much challenge and so much warning and so much, so many imperatives. God, we thank you that he is landing in a place here of great hope, of great hope in your return and the fact that we don't have to try to make everything happen. We can be patient. So God, we pray that you would be building this kind of patience from the ground up in our church, that there would be a real resilience and depth to our congregation, that there would be a real depth and graciousness and integrity in our families, in our small groups, in our Outreach into the community, in our homes, in our marriages, in our kids. God, we just pray that this would be a defining mark of our church and that really would prove to be exactly what this community needs to know about. That we would respond to the issues in our world from a place of rootedness, confidence, and strength, and patience. Uh, and that our King is coming back soon. So God, we pray that all of that, all of the resources of the gospel would bear all of the fruit you want it to bear in us. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.